0: I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of John. John's Gospel, we are in the ninth chapter. Last week we began by looking at verses one through five. Um, last week was a very important week, uh, not just for the setting for this passage this morning, but last week was an important week for our entire lives. We need to have a bedrock in the good purposes of Of God on display. You remember uh, the disciples are walking out of the temple with Jesus. Jesus has just taught that he is God. He has claimed to be God. The the Jews know that. They recognize that. And so they pick up stones to throw at him, to kill him. But he walks out of the temple. And as he's walking out of the temple, he sees a man born blind. There's a man blind from birth. And his disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that you'd become blind, that you'd be born this way? The disciples see a question. They don't see a man. They ask a question with wrong assumptions. They, they frame it in the category of fault. Who is at fault here? And Jesus answers their question but reframes it. Um, he reframes it. It's not about fault. It's about purpose. It's about cause. And we looked in depth at that last week. Fault won't get you anywhere. If you're going through suffering, if you're going through difficult circumstances, if you're going through trials and you say, well, who's at fault here? Why did this happen? And your answer has to be something about fault that won't get you anywhere. Purposes, causes. Why is this happening? And you answer that with purposes. You answer that with causes. God has caused this to happen for a purpose. That will get you somewhere. That's an anchor for your soul. So Jesus doesn't say anyone's at fault. It's not sin. It's not his parents, nor is it him. It's so that the works of God might be on display in him. God did this so that God would receive the glory. We talked at the end of the sermon last week that that answer will not work if you don't trust God and if you don't love his glory. If you don't love his glory, if you would rather have your health than see the works of God on display, that answer doesn't work. Thank you very much, God, but I don't want to see your glory on display. I want my health. I want... My child to be safe. I want my friends, my family to be okay. That's why we as a church preach Psalm 63.3 every Sunday, Lord willing. Your loving kindness is better than life. I'd rather have you. I'd rather have you than anything in this world. And when your eyes are open, when you see Jesus, and you see God's hope-filled purpose for the pain that you're going through, for the loss that you're going through, the the mess, the trials, the suffering, and you trust him in the midst of it, then you're in an amazing position to be bold, to be strong in your weakness, to be brokenheartedly bold, even in the midst of your suffering. Jesus says, you will see the works of God on display, and then he's going to do everything. He's going to do the works of God. He's going to claim to be God, even through the miracle that he's doing. And what we're going to look at Uh, This morning is Jesus' miracle and then the reactions to it. And if we were to be writing this story, I, I think we would write it very differently. The reactions to the miracle that we see. But at the same time, John has built his gospel up to this moment. He's told us we all have a fundamental issue in our hearts of unbelief. And this is what unbelief looks like on display, even when it's obvious That Jesus is who he claims to be So let's read this chapter again. I want to read it in full so that we can see it We're going to be looking at a lot of verses verses 6 through 38 So I want it to be fit and set in its context. So chapter 9 verse 1 As jesus passed by He saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him rabbi who sinned This man or his parents that he would be born blind And jesus answered it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents But it was so that the works of god might be displayed in him We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. And while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground. He made clay out of the spittle and he applied the clay to his eyes. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and he washed and he came back seen. Therefore, the neighbors... And those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he's like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, How then were your eyes opened? And he answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay, anointed my eyes, and said to me, Go wash at the pool of Siloam. So I went, I washed, I received sight. So they said to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought the Pharisees, uh, They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind, and it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. The Pharisees were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes. I watched, I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? So there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight. And they questioned them saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered and said, we know that this is our son and we know that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we don't know. Or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I already told you, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become one of his disciples too, do you? They reviled him, and they said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he's from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here's an amazing thing. You don't know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins, and you are teaching us. So they put him out. Jesus heard that they had put him out and finding him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? And he answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have both seen him and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we are not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. Father, I pray that you would be our guide. Holy Spirit grant illumination to give us understanding, give us clarity. This is such a rich text. And I pray that we would we would place ourselves in this account. That we would be there as this investigation takes place. I pray that the air around us would become dusty and dirty and, and loud as, as we feel and we hear and we smell the very exact same smells and sounds that were happening. Take us back to this moment to see what unbelief looks like. May this not just be a textbook to us give us Grace this morning to to see this text clearly. Open our eyes so that it wouldn't be a 2D passage to us, but it would be three-dimensional with everything that's here. May we understand it with our minds. May we comprehend it and obey it with our hearts. May we feel it as we walk with the disciples, as we are stunned by the unbelief of the Pharisees, but we see it in ourselves grant grace this morning. As we study your word, we pray in your name. Amen. Uh, For the purposes of our time this morning, just two main points for your outline. Number one, we're going to look at the healing. And number two, the controversy that ensues after the healing. So the healing and the controversy. Uh, There's an investigation that takes place after this man is healed. The healing, verse six, when he had said this, when he had said everything that he said that we looked at in depth last week, he spat on the ground He made clay of the spittle, applied the clay to his eyes, and he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. So he went away, he washed, and he came back seeing. So the first two questions that I have, very obvious questions are, Why does he do this? Why does Jesus make mud? Why does he spit? Why does he make mud? Why does he put the mud on the man's eyes? And then secondly, why does he say, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, and then John says, parentheses, which is translated scent? Um, this is a geographic location. This is a, a, a pool. It's called Siloam. But John tells us, I think that John's telling us there's a little bit of a meaning there because he puts a parenthesis around that to say Siloam means sent. So those are my two questions for this part of, of the healing. First, why the mud? Why the mud? Why the spit? Jesus does this a couple times, Mark chapter 7, Mark chapter 8. There are some hysterical responses that people have for why mud and spit. Um, The first is uh, he wanted, Jesus wanted to make use of the healing property of saliva. If that's the case, I should never, ever be sick because I hold my kids in my lap and they sneeze and saliva gets in my nose, in my eyes, in my mouth. So I should never be sick ever. I'm here to testify that saliva has no healing properties in my body, at least. This is a good one. Jesus applied this to his eyes to make him more blind. But just think about that logically. This man was blind from birth. How do you get more blind than blind? He can't see anything, so why would you stick mud in his eyes to make... That doesn't make sense. Um, Third, he wants to symbolize that man is made from dirt. Whatever. Four... (laughs) He wants to give the eyes, I like this one too. He wants to give the eyes time to heal. This is like, I am guessing that some eye doctor wrote that because he's thinking like, I did the surgery and I got to put the tape over your eyes with the cotton balls and the things and you can't see for a while. Or when you have your eyes dilated, you got to wear those like spaceman glasses. And um, that's what I'm thinking. Some guy just said, that's what it was. Um, I, I don't think that Jesus needs to give the man time to heal uh, as he heals his eyes, it's not like, um, but you can't look at anything for a week while they start to acclimate to the world again. In fact, when Jesus performs a miracle, every single time he performs a miracle, he heals something and the effects of what he has just healed go away instantly. Um, calming of the storm, this, he, he calms the storm and instantly the waves are calm. It doesn't take a while for the waves to go down. Heals Peter's mother-in-law in in Mark chapter 1, and instantly she gets up and she starts serving. Raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, Mark chapter 5, and instantly she's alive and she starts running around in the house. Man with the withered hand instantly uh, heals the hand and he can move it, paralytic, gets up, picks up the mat and starts walking. Doesn't need physical therapy. So I don't think that's it. So what is it? Why does Jesus spit in the ground, make mud, and put the mud on his eyes? Here is my answer. I don't know. That's a safe answer. I think it's an okay answer, but I will take a stab. I think I have a couple guesses as to why Jesus is doing this. There's two reasons why I think so. Number, just Overarchingly, I don't know. I cannot tell you without a shot of a doubt. We'll ask Jesus when we get to heaven. But two reasons why I think it could be that Jesus does it this way, because he does other miracles this way too. Number one, it's the Sabbath. It's the Sabbath when he does this, and it's not permissible on the Sabbath. You can't spit on the Sabbath because if you spit on the Sabbath, it will go into the ground with enough force that it makes a tiny little burrow in the ground, and you have just done work. So you have dug a a, a ditch. You have um, dug out a hole if you spit on the Sabbath, according to the Pharisaical tradition. So he's breaking the Sabbath by healing the man. You weren't allowed to heal people. He's breaking the Sabbath by doing that. He's breaking the Sabbath by spitting. And then he's also breaking the Sabbath by making mud, by putting mud together, because you weren't allowed to knead dough, knead clay, form anything. You weren't allowed to do that. So three ways that he is purposefully, specifically breaking the Sabbath. Uh, We said that last week. He goes out of his way to create controversy, and I think he's doing it here. As many ways as he possibly can, he's trying to break the Sabbath to get the Pharisees to say, We really don't like this guy. Um, So that's number one. Number two, he's simply calling for this man to submit. Um, In order to receive your sight and let this miracle ultimately take place, you need to go, look like a fool. I'm going to spit in the ground and put this mud in your eyes and all over your face. And you need to look like a fool as you're walking to the pool of Siloam. Maybe people are laughing at you, wondering what's going on. And you need to wash. But we don't have any response. I mean, think about this blind man. Does this blind man say, whoa, 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 hang on a second. I think I'd rather be blind than have to go through that. I don't want spit on my eyes. Uh, I don't want mud. I don't want to have to go wash. I don't want people to think I'm crazy. Just leave me blind. No, that would be insane. And I believe that this is a picture of salvation. This is a picture of the way that Jesus works in our hearts. And so I think what Jesus is doing is he's showing it would be insane to say, God, I don't want salvation. I'll do this on my own. I'll be okay. Even though we have to submit and there's difficult things we have to do. So it's Sabbath and Jesus is simply calling him to submit. How much do you want to see again? How much do you want to receive your sight? How much do you want to live? How much do you want to live eternally? That's, why does he do it that way? I don't know. Those are my two guesses. And then verse seven, he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Why does John tell us it means sent? Pool of Siloam. The reason why it means sent is because the waters were sent from the Gihon spring, which is outside of the wall, um, down through, you remember Hezekiah. Um, there was a, uh, a big battle that took place. It was an army that was coming to see, take siege, lay siege on Jerusalem. And so he built a tunnel. He, he dug out a tunnel. It's, known today in in Jerusalem as Hezekiah's Tunnel, and it took the water from the Gihon Springs into Jerusalem so that the Gihon Gihon Springs, even though it was outside of the walls, um, they built a little fortress around it, and so no enemy could come and cut off their water supply. It went right into the city. So it it went from the Gihon Spring through Hezekiah's Tunnel into a pool that's still there today called the Pool of Siloam, sent water. Every reader of John's gospel um, in Jerusalem, every good Jewish person would know that. Why does he say that for us? Again, I don't want to make too much of it, but I believe what Jesus is doing. When he said in verse 5, I am the light of the world, he's saying, I've come to bring sight, I've come to bring light and to eradicate darkness. Um, I have been sent, I am the sent one into the world to give you hope, to give you joy, to give you light. You remember the Pool of Siloam was used uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles. To, they would take the pitcher, and this is when Jesus said, when they would pour the pitcher of water from the Pool of Siloam onto the altar. We studied this a, a couple months ago. And um, Jesus says at that moment, I am the living water. I am the water that brings life. Come to me if you're thirsty, and I will satisfy you. I think what Jesus is saying here is, Go to the pool which is sent, and it will remind the readers of the fact that I was sent to take away sin. I was sent to take away your blindness. I was sent to give you spiritual blessing, to give you spiritual sight. And if anyone is thirsty, they can come to me and drink. This whole account is a beautiful picture of salvation and regeneration. And it fits perfectly into John's gospel. John has said so many times, if God doesn't act, you can't get saved. You must be born again. What does that mean? What did you contribute to your physical birth? Nothing. What do you contribute to your spiritual birth? Nothing. God needs to do the work. But then a lot of people will go, okay, then I do nothing. No, that's not true. John three sixteen. same context. You must be born again, but whosoever will. If you want to believe in him, you can believe in him. Whosoever will can believe. Believe in him. And I think this is a beautiful picture of that. Jesus says, I'm going to do the work to give you sight, but you need to do something. You still have a, a moral obligation to believe. Will you believe that by going to the pool and washing, you will regain your sight? Um, there is belief. There is Jesus acting. And if he doesn't act, we don't have salvation. But if Jesus acts, if he gives us sight and tells us to go, we will go. We will obey. And the obedience will be fruit. As we respond in obedience, it will be fruit that we are truly saved. So that's the healing. Simple enough. Simple enough. Even though there's some complexities, a blind man now can see. And he was blind from birth, and he can now see. Now, the disciples saw a question. The neighbors see a question. The Pharisees see a question. What you never see that I would expect to see in this account is at least one person standing up and saying, how awesome that you can see. Nobody celebrates that this man can see. Everybody just looks at him and goes, wait, how did this happen? What's going on? They're just investigating Nobody takes time to say, you can see. You've never been able to see your entire life. And just before we ask you questions, how cool is this? Look, there's a tree here. Have you never seen a tree before? Look at the tree. There's a bird. That's what a bird is. You've heard birds before. That's what they, there's none of that. Instantaneous, they go straight to, what's wrong with this picture? Nobody celebrates. Um, and that's the controversy. So number one, we had our healing, and now the controversy ensues. And in this controversy, this is verses 8 through 34, in this controversy, we are going to see unbelief on full display. This is really kind of the pathology of unbelief. We're going to see how unbelief makes conclusions before it even does examinations. It's predisposed to its own viewpoint. Uh, It establishes false standards. It demands more and more evidence, and then when it receives that evidence, it doesn't respond how any appropriate person should respond. It's very irrational. Unbelief is irrational. Unbelief does biased research. It looks at facts and comes to the complete wrong conclusion. It's self-centered. It's selfish. It's egocentric. And we're going to see it on full display. Now, there are six conversations that take place in this controversy. We're going to look at four today, and we will look at two next time. Six different conversations Uh, As they investigate the first one, we'll just break down the controversy into these conversations. First conversation, verses eight through 12, is the man, the blind man who's blind no more and his neighbors. Okay, verse eight. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Okay, so we know this. There was a beggar. He was blind. He used to sit at the temple and beg. And isn't this the guy? Verse nine. Some are saying. This is he, so some are going, yeah, that's him, that's, that's Jimmy. Jimmy has been blind his whole life, and now he can see, we know that was him. But others are saying, middle of verse nine, no, but he's like him. Um, and it looks like I, I don't know if all beggars, blind beggars look to the same, but he, they're saying, eh, it's kind of like Jimmy, but it 's not Jimmy." And he keeps on saying, "Hey guys, I'm that guy. <laughs> I am the one." I am the one who was blind. And so they say, how then were your eyes opened? How were your eyes opened? I just It's amazing to me how many times you see in this passage I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't Do you know? I don't know. I don't There's an investigation. Even in the very opening conversation between the man and his neighbors, There's already a dispute. There's already a controversy happening. Is this really the guy? I don't think he's the guy. I think this was set up. I think this is a hoax. This isn't the guy. And I just, with some sanctified imagination here, I see this blind man saying, okay, hang on a second, guys. Before, you used to look at me and you could see me, but I was blind and I couldn't see you. Now I can see you and you can't see me. You don't remember me what is happening here? This should be so simple. I was blind. I can see hip, hip, hooray. We're done. That's it's an easy thing, but not for unbelief. Unbelief can't say, oh, see, that's Jesus doing the work. He must be God. Unbelief says there must be another way. So they say, how did this happen? How did this happen? Verse 11, the man answers, the man who is called Jesus made clay, anointed my eyes, said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And I went away, I washed and I received sight. Notice he calls him the man. We're going to see this blind man's progression, man, prophet, son of God. Here he says, he's a man and he did this amazing thing. And they go, okay, thanks. We're done with you. Show us where he is because we need to interrogate him. Verse 12, where is he? And he says, I don't know. There's just a lot of I don't knows. I don't know. I don't know. Do you know? I don't know. So they say, let's investigate this ourselves. That's the end of conversation number one. They don't even know if this is the real guy. They don't even believe it, even though it's obvious. And he's saying, guys, it's me. I'm the one. Verse 13. This is the beginning of the second conversation. And this is between the man, the blind man and the Pharisees. This is verses 13 to 17. They brought to the Pharisees, the man who was formerly blind. So I love how John says that. Look, we know this guy was actually blind, but he's not blind anymore. But just to not confuse anybody, we're going to call him the man who's blind, but not anymore. Formerly blind. Now, why would they bring him to the Pharisees? Why did they do that? This is the neighbors. They need help with how this took place. That's why they're bringing him. I think they're bringing him for two reasons. Number one, they're bringing him to the Pharisees to say, how could this have happened? you all, Pharisees, you religious leaders have told us Jesus is not the Messiah. And yet he's doing some pretty messianic things. This looks like the Son of God is doing this. So how did this happen? This is the exact same thing that happened right when the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit took place, the unpardonable sin. Uh, You remember um, Jesus heals a man. as an insanely messianic miracle, demon possession gone, uh, deaf, blind, mute, all these different things gone. And the, the Pharisees say he's not... Of God, and the people say, Well, then who is he? How did he do this if he's not sent by God? And they huddle up and they go, "Uh, He did it by the power of Satan. This is the exact same thing that's taking place. They're coming to the Pharisees saying, We need an answer because that sure looks like he's God, but you're saying he's not. The second reason why they're bringing him to the Pharisees is because, verse 14, he did this on the Sabbath. He broke the Sabbath. In at least three ways, he broke the Sabbath. So if he is sent by God, why would he break the Sabbath? We've got a dilemma. People, uh, the, the Pharisees the, the Pharisees and the crowds that followed them could not stand miracles on the Sabbath. So they say, who is this guy? Verse 15, Pharisees who were also asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes. I washed and I see. So they bring the man. They interrogate the man. He's saying the exact same thing. He's probably getting a little bit bored of this and tired of having to, uh, being asked and having to give answers. Verse 16, therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. So there's a group of the Pharisees that are saying, okay, he's not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Notice they say this man. They won't even refer to him as Jesus. They don't like this guy. They know that Jesus is attacking them personally. So they don't even call him Jesus. They say, this man. And this, this group, there's a, there's a whole logical progression here. And it shows how illogical unbelief can be. Um, these Pharisees are using what we'd call logical syllogism. Uh, you have a major premise, a minor premise, and a conclusion. Major premise Anybody sent by God would not break the Sabbath. Minor premise, Jesus broke the Sabbath. Therefore, conclusion, he's not sent by God. And that's their logical syllogism. But others in the crowd and in the Pharisees are saying, oh, here's another logical syllogism. Um, Nobody but a guy sent by God can do miracles. He did a miracle that opened a blind man's eyes. Then he must be sent by God. That's the middle of verse 16. Others are saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? So there's a division among them. So, verse 17, they say to the blind man again, I love this. What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? This blind man has been a beggar his whole life. He has never been looked up to by anyone in society. Everybody looks down on this man. He's riffraff. He's an outcast. He's cursed by God in everybody's mind, such that the disciples in earshot of this guy are saying, hey, who's saying this man? There's no pity on this man. And now the resident theologians of the day are asking him a theological question. Who do you think the guy is? Who do you think he is? And he moves from he's a man to the end of verse 17. He is, A prophet. He is a prophet. Now, when unbelief does not get the answer that it wants, you assume that there's a lie. You assume there's a lie. And that's exactly what happens. He's a prophet. They're asking a question. Who is this guy? He's a prophet. He is sent by God. And they say, we don't like that. Verse 18, this starts conversation number three. This is between the man's parents and the Pharisees. The Jews then did not believe it of him. What specifically? That he was born blind and had received sight. So when unbelief says, I don't like your answer, they try to undercut it some way. And so the way that the Pharisees are doing it is they're saying, he was never even blind to begin with. And they go to the parents with that question. They call the parents of the very one who had received his sight, and they question them, verse 19, saying, Is this your son, notice, who you say was born blind? This is a very wicked question to ask. Imagine the parents. The parents have probably been asked the same question that the disciples were asking about the man. Who sin? Who is at fault here? Imagine how the parents would have been considered cursed to have a, a baby born blind. What did you guys do that God cursed you this way? What, imagine the oppression. Imagine the, the maligning of their character. And here it's maligned even more. You're lying about it. You say that he's blind, but you're covering it up. You just want to get famous in Israel and say that this guy who's been blind really isn't blind, but he's received his sight. This is all a sham. This is such a wicked question because to be born blind is to be cursed by God in their economy. It's not truly, but it's to be cursed. Why would a parent lovingly caring for their kid say, I want to pretend that you're cursed by God, we're cursed by God, and I want you to have to go beg and we don't want a relationship with you? This is a very wicked thing for the Pharisees to be projecting onto these parents. How does he now see, you just said it, probably wasn't even true, right? Right? Verse 20. His parents answered and they said, We know that this is our son, and we know that he was born blind. You know, read the, there, there's emotion in that. There's fear in this text, and we'll get to that. But there's got to be some level of emotion of we know that. How dare you ask us that we're lying about our son? I love the parents for that reason, and I empathize with them, but They do some pretty stupid things. Verse 21. But how he now sees, we don't know, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. And they throw him under the bus. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Why do they say we're not going to vouch for him? He can answer for himself. Why do they say that? Verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed Jesus to be Christ, he's to be put out of the synagogue. The Jews, remember when John uses that term, it's almost always used to speak negatively of the religious leaders. So he says, John tells us, his parents are afraid of being put out of the synagogue. The Greek, apo be put out. Um, this is way more than excommunication would be when you think of like church Discipline. Being thrown out of the synagogue is a big deal. There were actually three steps of being thrown out of the synagogue. One was uh, you would be thrown out for seven days to 30 days. It was kind of a period of time where you needed to um, be checked up on. Um, So it was about a week to a month. There was a second type of Aposynagoge, which was being um, put out for 30 days and up. There was no real end point, so a month and beyond. and, And maybe we'll bring you back if we think you're acceptable to us. But there was one final one, which was an indefinite, permanent ban, and that's this right here. You are banned from the synagogue, and to be banned from the synagogue is to be banned from every form of Jewish life. You are an outcast, so you can't buy anything from a Jewish person. You can't fellowship or socialize with anybody who's a Jewish person. You are a cursed outcast. The implications are so far-reaching socially, economically, and beyond, not just religiously. And so they say, we don't want that. We don't want to be put out. We don't want to lose our friends, our business, our job, our livelihood, our house. We don't want that. So they say, ask him. They throw him under the bus. On the one hand, you feel bad for the parents. And on the other hand, you go, man, these guys are mean. What's happening here? This story just is unraveling. And that leads us to conversation number four. This is actually the longest of all conversations. Verse 24 through 34 is conversation number four. A second time they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man, once again, they're not saying the name of Jesus. Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Now, why do they say give glory to God? It's a direct quote from somewhere in the Old Testament. Um, Remember in Joshua chapter 7, Right after the battle of Jericho, the, the children of Israel go to fight against a city called Ai, and they lose. And the reason that they lose the battle is because there's sin in the camp. A guy by the name of Achan had hid his sin. His family was also culpable inside of that sin. And so Joshua, when he finds out, he goes to Achan's tent, and he says, Give glory to God and tell the truth. That's what these Pharisees are saying. They're quoting the Old Testament. They're saying God's glorified when you tell the truth. So tell the truth. Stop lying to us. Stop lying. Verse 25. The blind man jumps into this I don't know business. And I love that. Whether he is a sinner, I don't know. I think that he's going to get very gutsy and very sarcastic the remainder of this time. Because he's being asked over and over and over and over. And he sees their unbelief and he goes, guys, this is just foolish. This is foolishness, and I'm done. And so here he says, okay, guys, I don't know. Just like you don't know anything that's happening here, I don't know if he's a sinner. He totally knows he's not a sinner. But he says this, one thing I do know, although I was blind, now I see. So they say to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Ooh, this is a good key. Now they at least say, okay, you were blind and you had your eyes opened. But they're still not going to believe. How did he open your eyes? How did he do this? He says, I already told you, and you didn't listen. And here's the sarcasm. Why? Do you want to hear it again because you want to be his disciples? Do you want to follow him too? This is beautiful. I, I, I think that there's, we see in the life of our Savior, sarcastic rebukes, comments that we would never say in church to one another, and we should never say. And the reason why we see these comments, we always only see them directed at the leaders of false religion. And so here, this man picks up on that, and he says, I can totally make fun of your unbelief and and you are a leader of a false religion. You do not see Jesus making fun, sarcastic comments over sinners who are struggling with sin. You don't see that. You see the disciples doing that and Jesus rebuking the disciples. But you see Jesus saying, and this man picks up on it and starts jumping in as well, to say, you guys, this is illogical, this is irrational, and I'm not playing that game. And he's trying to call their bluff. And what do they do? Verse 28, they revile him. They say, you're his disciple, but we're disciples of Moses. You can follow him. He's a false teacher. We're disciples of the true teacher, Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he's from. Verse 30, the man answered, well... This is an amazing thing. This is more sarcasm. Wow, you guys are amazing. You're brilliant. This is amazing brilliance on display. And what is it? That you don't know where he's from even though he opened my eyes. The how can you not know that he's from God when he opened my eyes? That's obvious. And then he goes on, verse 31. We know that God does not hear sinners. So if this man was a sinner, he wouldn't be heard by God jesus was a sinner he wouldn't be allowed to do these things that god's doing through him but if anyone is god fearing and does his will he hears him and since the beginning of time verse 32 this man calls upon his old testament since the beginning of time it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind there is nobody in the old testament who was blind and received sight sent by god nobody and this man says i know my old testament i know my bible If this man were not from God, verse 33, he could do nothing. There's no ability to do anything if he's not sent by God. This man is totally uneducated. He's a beggar. He's blind. But he trumps their knowledge by his own personal testimony. And this this is why the doctrines of grace are so important, they're so necessary. If you stand up and you say, uh, yeah, I know how I got to God. I did this, 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 and this, and and I got saved. Um, You don't have a personal testimony to share. You just say, I did a couple things, and now I'm a follower of Jesus. But if you are able to say, I hated God. I was blind. I was foolish. I was ignorant. I was angry. I didn't want anything to do with God. And God died for me. And he, turned, he opened my eyes. He gave me sight so that I could see how lovely and glorious he is. And my heart turned to joy and love. And now I love him and I hate the sin that I used to love. He called me. He brought me to himself. Now you have a miracle and now you have a testimony. I was blind, but now I see. That testifies to the grace of God. There's two more conversations but before those two, in verse 35 all the way through the end of the chapter, they answer, the, the Pharisees answer, you were born entirely in sins, and you are teaching us, so they put him out. They, you're excommunicated. You're done. No longer part of the fellowship of Judaism. But Jesus hears this. There's two more conversations. We'll pick these up uh, in, in a couple of weeks. Jesus hears that, that they had put him out, verse 35, and finding him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Just notice the compassion of our Savior. He heard that this man had lost everything. He, is, he has been put out of Judaism. And he goes, Jesus seeks him out and finds him. I don't think there's any coincidence to John 10 being the next chapter and the next teaching. I am the good shepherd. I will find my sheep. I will bring them to my fold. I will keep them secure. I will save them. I will never lose one of them. He did that to this man. And the blind man's going to worship. The Pharisees, the last conversation out of the 6, verse 40, the Pharisees hear what Jesus is saying and they answer, we're not blind too, are we? If you have to ask, am I blind? You're probably blind. So they say, am I blind? Are we blind? And Jesus is going to say something so amazing that we need a whole Sunday to get to it. We need a whole Sunday to get to it. So four different conversations filled with controversy, how do we wrap these things up? What are the implications for us? Just really quickly. Number one, this passage tells us who we are. It tells us who we are. We can look at the Pharisees and we can say, you guys are so illogical, so ignorant, so foolish, so filled with unbelief. I don't understand you. But the gospel tells us that we are just as blind as they are. We are not the blind man or the Pharisees in this story. We, are, we are, the, are the blind man or the disciples in this story. We are the Pharisees in this story. We are just as ignorant and we need the gospel to come and to soften our heart, to open our eyes. In this whole passage, if you were to synthesize it down, it shows us that unbelief is hostile to the truth. That's who we are. As unbelievers, we are hostile to the truth, we are born blind. Unable to see the truth. We hate the truth. Ephesians 2, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. In this passage, unbelief will never bend. It could never be convinced. It keeps probing. It keeps asking questions, but only to seek justification for discrediting what it doesn't believe. That's who we are. Unbelief is irrational. You put the facts out there, and no one in their right mind would see it any other way than the truth. God's the only one who could have done this. But unbelief is irrational. Unbelief is abusive, contemptuous. It throws this man out. It physically uh, throws him out, verbally abuses him. No matter what this man does, they keep on asking, he keeps on telling, and they will not believe. Guys, that is us before Jesus saves us. So who are we? We are the Pharisees here in this story, struggling with unbelief, blind in our ignorance. And that leads us to number two who is Jesus? Jesus came into the world to confront blindness. This whole chapter is about physical blindness, but it's so much more than that. This whole chapter is about spiritual blindness and spiritual sight. Jesus came to cure physical blindness here in this story, but he came to cure spiritual blindness ultimately. Isaiah chapter nine verse two. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. This is a prophecy about who the Messiah is going to be. Isaiah twenty-nine, eighteen. On that day the deaf will hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. Isaiah thirty-five, five through six, then the eyes of the blind will be open, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, and the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. Uh, Isaiah chapter 42, verses 6 through 7. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from their prisons. Jesus said it. In John 9, John 8 and John 9, I am the light of the world. The Messiah has come not just to fix your physical blindness, but to fix your spiritual blindness. So who are we? We are blind. We are dead. We cannot see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4. And so Jesus comes to pull back that veil and to shine the light of his glory. He comes to open our eyes. And he can do that this morning. He can do that this morning. He can bring light into your darkness. And I pray like the blind man, you would say, yes, Lord, and worship and obey every command. Finally, putting um, the last Sunday and and this Sunday together, putting this story together, and we'll finish it in a couple weeks. God has wise, good, Christ-exalting purposes for everything that happens to us. He does. And Jesus alone brings fulfillment, final, joyful satisfaction in the midst of whatever you're going through, all because he's seeking us out. He sought this man out, and he's seeking you and me. He's seeking us to be worshipers of him. Father, I pray that if there are any in this room who do not have spiritual sight, that this would be the day that. You, by your grace, would shine the light into their eyes, the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and they would see their need for a Savior. You would act, and then they would act in repentance. You would act in regeneration, calling dead people to live again, and they would act by coming forth, just like you called Lazarus forth from the grave. Lazarus, come forth. You raised him from the dead, and then he walked out. God, thank you for this picture of courage that this blind man had. No matter what would happen, he would follow you. He can see. What could man do to him now? Excommunicate him from the synagogue? What is that? I can see now, and not just physically. I worship the Son of God. May we live with that same courage, even in the midst of a broken and hostile world. And may we be patient with those who do not believe around us, knowing that we too were once ignorant, irrational, hostile in our unbelief. And may we pray for them that you, by your grace, would grant them illumination, give them light, pull back the blinders so that they would see. We pray in the name of Christ.